Thank you very much, Richard. It's great to be here. It's great to be here. If we've not met before, then hello, good to meet you. And if we have met before, thank you for coming back anyway. And uh, it's been really great. We've been in this area for about 10 years or so. I, I grew up in uh, Stockport, South Manchester, and I had a proper job, uh, happily uh, architecting, and then God called me into church leadership. And uh, that's been a joy and a privilege. So I pastored a church in South Manchester for about 16 years, then moved to Bedworth near Coventry and pastored there for 10 years, then came here 10 years ago to um, serve at Regent's Theological College. I'll, uh, I'll talk about that a little tiny bit more after the break, um, just to let you know a bit more about it. And then about seven years ago, I was asked to bring some leadership to the Elim Church in Worcester. And so we brought some leadership there. It needed a little bit of repurposing uh, for about, uh, about seven years ago. So I was there for a couple of years, two or three years, then handed over to a mate of mine, Matt, Matt Town, who leads it now, which is uh, Life Church, Lifehouse. So, uh, so that's my background. I'm married to Jill. We've got three kids um, and the nearest one to us lives in Mozambique. <laughs> so, <laughs> and uh, I keep having to remind my, uh, my wife that she is letting all our children know how, miss, how much she misses the grandson. And I'm saying, yeah, don't forget you miss the kids. Yeah, Mr. Grandson. Uh, he's in New Zealand. Not on his own, you understand, <laughs> with his, with his mum and dad. So uh, it was great. I'm really glad when Richard first talked to me about being involved in this. It is a great privilege and a joy to be with you. And it really is. So the topic for today is uh, what's God doing in the world? What God is doing in the world. So two main halves to it, even though it's three sessions, we'll work that out as we go along. But firstly, we're going to be looking at the Gospels. Focusing on the Synoptic Gospels, because I do know that the last session included some looking at John, but I've talked to Richard, got a little bit of permission to, um, to uh, look a little bit at John's Gospel. So we'll be looking at the, the four Gospels, especially the Synoptics, and we'll talk about why they're called that and whatever, but essentially talking about what Jesus did when Jesus intervened in the world. And then we'll move on to the Kingdom of God and be thinking about what we, on his behalf, do in the world. So our overall framework for today is... What is God doing in the world? Part one will be Jesus came in and disrupted the world and began to see that mission of God accomplished on earth. And then when he'd done his stuff, he then said, OK, church, get on with it, which takes us into the kingdom. So synoptics and kingdom of God. Brilliant. I think it's good to pray because I don't know about you, but I need help. And, and do you know the person next to you? Yeah, they need help. They need help, don't they? <laughs> so I'm really sorry, sir. I don't know your name. I'm going to ask you if you would pray with us, if that's okay. I never ask you your name. Isaac. So Isaac has kindly volunteered to pray with us. And uh, if you need his special help, can you just put your hand up and then uh, Isaac will know who he needs special help. <laughs> okay. Thanks, mate. Yeah, Father God, we just pray that you'd be with us this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to be together and just learn about more, more about you and encounter your presence together. So we pray that you bless us and be with us this morning. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Isaac. Thanks a lot. Okay, so um, four portraits. Four portraits. I want us to think of four portraits of the Queen. You know the Queen. Yeah, wait, let me say no. Yeah, there's knowing and there's knowing. But if we think of four portraits of the Queen, okay? There's a portrait of the Queen. And there's a portrait of the Queen. There's a portrait of the Queen. There's a portrait of the Queen. Um, so on there we have an oil painting, we have a charcoal sketch, we have a watercolour and we have a pen and ink drawing. Um, I want to talk about four portraits of Jesus. Four portraits of Jesus. But if we go back to think about the Queen, let's think of this first. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest that we need to look at Matthew's portrait of Jesus as like a confident, bold oil painting. A confident, bold oil painting. That's Matthew's portrait of Jesus. I'm going to suggest that Mark's portrait of Jesus is a dramatic charcoal pastel sketch. 
When I worked in architecture as a, a friend of mine who was our job winner, he would be one who would sit down with regional bank managers about refurbing a bank or about doing something in the city centre of Manchester or some business premises. And, and our job winner was not the technical draftsman who did the little things and said, you know, all the little words on and the working drawings. That was a total stuff that me and others got. But our job winner was the, the charcoal sketch. He would just get his big pastels. It would be the big picture. And, and then that would sell the job to somebody and say, yes, I want it like that. And then I would say to my friend Jim, who had done that drawing, you put a tree there. How does that building join up with that building? I don't know. Work that out later. And so, so a charcoal sketch is that rough edge. Okay. Um, Luke. Luke is a much more careful, intricate watercolour. Much more careful, intricate watercolour. And John, a detailed pen and ink drawing. The detail, the precision, the accuracy. Really important. Depth, weight, all that you get in a pen and ink drawing, really carefully done, carefully put together. So Matthew, confident, bold oil painting. Mark, dramatic charcoal pastel sketch. Luke, careful, intricate, watercolour, delicate, put together. And then John, the detailed pen and ink drawing. So I'm going to propose that we, it helps us to think of the four Gospels as different portraits of Jesus. But let's just quickly go back to these. Which one is correct? Which one is correct? Do we like that? See, is the queen only the queen when she's got a crown on? Or do I, do I like the one when she's a little bit younger? What about the one that she looks like a proper grandma? What about another one? She, what about if we'd got one with, next to Philip? What about if we'd got one with her, with her wellies on, with a shotgun, walking through a field? What about if we'd got one sitting on the throne with the Archbishop of Canterbury next to her? What about if we'd got one with her corgis and the dogs and... It's like, well, which, which one's the real queen? I'm really sorry. That is the wrong question. But you know, sometimes I wanted to do that to grab our attention because if we're not careful, the way we look at the Gospels is not the way we would look at four portraits of the queen. We find ourselves, if we're not careful, thinking which one's the correct one? Which one's the accurate one? Which one's the proper one? But that's the wrong question. You would never say that of these four portraits of the Queen. And I'm going to propose that we should never say that with the Gospels either. They are portraits. They are put together to show a per particular facet, a particular angle, a particular edge. It's really important. See, each one has value. Each one is distinctive. Each shows a different facet. Will the real Queen please stand up? Well, it, this is the wrong question. We need to see, and I love this little phrase from somebody, that the Gospels are remembered history, but not creative inventions. You see, if we're strong evangelical Christians, and you never know, there's one or two, if we're not careful, we find ourselves being in discussion with those outside of faith, or maybe those cynical of the Bible, and we find ourselves in that discussion where, yeah, but in this Bible it says that this happens, in this gospel it says this, in this gospel, was Jesus going into Jericho or out of Jericho when he healed the blind man? And was it blind man or was it blind men? Was, and what about this? What? These are not diaries. None of the gospel writers says, Thursday morning we did so and so, and Thursday afternoon we went, ah, that's wrong. No. None of these claim to be diaries. They're all portraits. But each person wants to present Jesus in a particular light. And because of that, cynics of the scripture can say, ah, they're creative inventions then, made up. Sometimes hundreds of years after it happened. But I want to say, no, 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 they are not creative inventions, but neither are they diaries. They're remembered history. If my wife and I were to go to a wedding... And you came to me afterwards and said, oh, tell me about the wedding. I would be able to tell you all the important things. I would be able to tell you about the huge buttresses coming up the walls. Incredible clear story windows. And I'd be able to tell you about the vaulting and the magnificence of the dome and the magnificence of the way the fretwork was done. And I'd be able to tell you about what the preach was all about. And I'd be able to tell you about the importance of the ceremony. And I would tell you all about the wedding. You talk to my wife. What colour the bridesmaid's dresses were? I mean, who cares? What colour the flowers were? One, two of the songs. Who cares about all that stuff? And so if you talk to me and talk to my wife, you'd say, oh, they went to different weddings. No, no, no. We went to the same wedding, but different things were important to us. 
We need to think of the Gospels like that. They are not creative inventions, but they're not diaries. They are remembered history, but they are remembered history, remembered by four different people. So important to get that foundation. So if we think of the four Gospels, what's similar? Well, none of them are signed. None of them actually, at the end of them, say, lots of love, John. None of them are actually signed by the author. What's different? Oh, there's so a very early indication of something that's different. A very early one is how they treat the genealogy of Jesus. Because in Matthew's gospel, as we will see, this bold oil painting is very much flavoured with a Jewish background. And therefore, when Matthew puts the genealogy of Jesus in, it's the rabbinic style because it's very important to have the heritage of Jesus. So who does Matthew start with? Abraham. When he wants to give the genealogy of Jesus, he starts with Abraham and goes forward to Jesus. Okay, Abraham, really important to Jews. Get the Jews' attention. That's what he's important to do right at the beginning of his, of his writing. So starts with Abraham, works forward to Jesus. Luke, Luke is really, really keen to make sure that we know this gospel is for all nations. So what does Luke do with the, with the genealogy? He starts with Jesus and goes backwards. His dad was, his dad was, his dad was, his dad was, until he gets to who? Adam. And so... Matthew starts with Abraham, goes forward to Jesus. Luke, completely different purpose, starts with Jesus and works backwards to Adam because all humanity is going to receive this salvation he's bringing. Mark, what, does, what genealogy does he do? He says, who cares? Who cares? Nothing. Jesus is here. No matter where he came from, what happened? It's Jesus. Bang. Boy, oh boy. I mean, Mark's gospel starts like a James Bond film. It's just boom, boom. And we're into it. Who, and you, you, why, who, why? Who? No, no, no. I don't care about all that stuff. And, uh, and John, nothing at all. No genealogy of Jesus. Even though John is seen as like the deep gospel, no genealogy at all. But you know what? It's really important to John that the beginning of his gospel sounds like the beginning of Genesis. In the beginning. Oh. And so we see Im- immediately there's some differences. Some differences. So. They need to be looked at together. Which is the real queen? That's not the point. We can find other pictures. We need to be looking at them together. So the reason they're called the synoptics, and it always intrigues me at events like this, there's some real clever dudes. And and the risk then is if we have discussions, they've got to make sure they don't show off. So there's real clever dudes. And and some of this can be, oh yeah, I've known that for years. There's other people who are sort of brand new to this type of thinking in scripture. And we've got to make sure we don't lose people with, uh, with long words. So trying to find that business of stopping the clever Jews from showing off, but helping the people who are new to this not to drown. So hopefully we'll be able to do that. Do you reckon? You sign this to a clever dude. And, and anyway, um, but you see, it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. So synoptics, two Greek words, nearly all Greek words are two Greek words put together. Sun is together with. Okay, together with. You see, have that synagogue is to gather together with, symposium. Uh, there's masses of words like that. So sun, uh, S-Y-N or S-U-N, is, is together with. And then the optics, well, to look at together, you can imagine the optics. So when people talk about the synoptic gospels, S-U-N or S-Y-N um, is together with, and optic is to look together And that means to get a full picture of this jolly wedding that my wife and I went to, to to get the deep, proper stuff that I know and the little frilly, floozy stuff that Jill would remember. The way to get a good picture of the wedding is to look at those together. Therefore, the synoptic Gospels are deemed as Matthew, Mark and Luke because they parallel each other. John's a little bit different, but Matthew, Mark and Luke are referred to as the synoptic Gospels because you look at them together. So that's the real picture. And so Matthew's portrait, Matthew's portrait. I want to say this is the bold oil painting. Matthew, he's concise and he's very orderly. He actually says that right up front. He's concise. He's orderly. And there are very brief accounts. He's, he's a really good editor of stuff. A really good editor. He allows him to get lots of material in. It's very organised, and you may or may not know, but the teaching of Jesus. So we talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If we're not careful, if we get in the diary mentality, we think, well, it was a Tuesday morning when 
you know, Jesus went up the hill and said, hear you, hear you. This is the one time he did it. That's, that's, that's unlikely. He probably did that talk quite a few times. <laughs> and different bits of it would have been relevant in different places. And so the teaching of Jesus is put together, but it's arranged in five discourses. And there are people who argue that that wants to parallel the five books of Moses. So the five books of Moses, uh, beginning of the Old Testament, there's five teaching blocks. So it's concise, it's short, it's brief. He's a really good uh, sort of journalist in terms of editing things short, uh, in, in short number of words. Um, but the teachings are arranged in five groups. Also, links between the Old and New Testaments. And so it's positioned, obviously, first uh, of the um, um, books of the New Testament and the link between the Old and New Testament. Some of the texts are written in Aramaic originally, um, whereas the rest is written in Greek in the New Testament. Uh, but Matthew quotes the Old Testament 41 times. 41 times. His audience, the, the people in his mind that he wants to grab, are the Jews to convince them that this Jesus is your Messiah. That's the main audience in his mind. So he quotes the Old Testament 41 times. And of those 41, 37 of those use the little phrase, that it might be fulfilled, which is a very Jewish expression. So-and-so, so-and-so happened, that it might be fulfilled. So-and-so happened, that it might be fulfilled. And so Matthew is at great lengths to show the continuity from the Old Testament to New Testament, Old Covenant to New Covenant, that whole thing of grabbing the Jews and connecting with that is really important. So he appeals to the Jews, and that's a really important thing for him. He often refers to Jewish traditions, to Jewish customs, he talks about phylacteries, talks about little tassely things. He talks about tassels, talks about whitewashed tombs. He's really keen to make it clear that Jesus is the Messiah. And forgive me, you probably know, but Messiah, Messiah, Messiah is the Hebrew. Christos is the Greek. And so therefore, Christos is, is Messiah, Messiah. So same thing. So Jesus being the Messiah, the Christos. Sometimes we talk about, oh, yes, I hope you don't think this is irre irrelevant, irreverent. <laughs> That's even worse than irrelevant, irreverent. Um, but sometimes we, we talk about, um, you know, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it, we think of it as like Mr. and Mrs. Christ and their son, Jesus. But it's not that. It's a title. And it's an expectation of the Jews that the Messiah, the Christos, the anointed one, the deliverer, is coming. And therefore, in continuity with that, Matthew is at great pains to say that the Messiah, Jesus, is the promised Messiah, the Christos. He's the son of David. So again, that connection, Abraham through David, through to Jesus. Um, but of course, Israel's rejection of Christ causes the transference of the divine privileges of the chosen people to the whole Christian community. Um, you see that in Matthew, Matthew 21. And again, you probably know this, Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? See, straight back to their scriptures, straight away back to the Psalms. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And so therefore, Israel's rejection of Christ causes the opening up beyond. So there's a universal element. This salvation is open to all. Which, of course, if you go back to the Jewish scriptures, Isaiah especially, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but especially Isaiah, the universality of this salvation message was really important. And trying to get it through to the thick head of the Jews that you are blessed, but to be a blessing to others. Which, of course, comes down to the church. Oh, doesn't it annoy you when uh, any Christian is, oh, I'm blessed. I'm blessed. I'm anointed. I'm blessed. Yeah, yeah, but the whole point of that isn't just a privilege. It's a humongous responsibility because you've been blessed to be a blessing. And so going back to that, that universal element is deep in, in the history. It goes right back to Abraham, let alone Isaiah. And so that appealing to the Jews and saying, hey, he's your Messiah, but actually through you as the chosen people, he's the Messiah to all as well. So the emphasis in Matthew is on Jesus's teaching. And um, if you've got one of these Bibles with the red words in which somebody treated me to, if you look through Matthew, it's full of red. I mean, look at that. Two pages of just red. The words of Jesus in red. And therefore, if you flick through a 
gospel um, where the words of Jesus are in red, you will find red all over the place in Matthew's gospel. Why? Because Matthew is really bothered about the teaching, about the teaching. He focuses on what Jesus said and the law being made complete in Jesus. I'm going to come back to this, but, G- but Matthew speaks a lot about the kingdom and the church. A lot about the kingdom and the church. Um, only Matthew of the Gospels speaks of the church and uses the word ecclesia. You scribble that up. I'm sure you'll get that from ecclesia. And so two Greek words. <laughs> ek, as in what the ek? No, no, ek, as in out. Ek, as in out. And the second half comes from kleo, which is to, to call. And so ecclesia are a called out people, a called out people. Only Matthew uses that phrase and, and usually translated church. So, so called out people, called out and called to God. And so Matthew speaks of the church, uses this word, but only a couple of times. He uses the term kingdom 54 times, 54 times. Um, and Jesus is the bringer of the kingdom. John will only use the word kingdom three times. Matthew is very focused on the coming of the kingdom. And um, therefore, the Sermon of the Mount, for example, um, is addressed to those who have professed faith in Christ. Really important that. Um, See, the audience that Jesus is speaking to in the Sermon on the Mount, they they have chosen to follow him. They're beginning to be his disciples. So Jesus is now now telling them how to live. Okay. now, even that would go back to the Ten Commandments, to the law. And we have a misunderstanding in the Old Testament. We sometimes think that God gave the law, the commandments, etc., so that if people obey the law, they'll come into relationship with God. Terrible misunderstanding of Old Testament law, that. God did not give the law to say, if you obey the law, you'll come into relationship with God. No, no. He brought his people into relationship with him through covenant. And then said, and if you're in covenant relationship with me... This is how you'll live. So the law is not given as a mechanism that if you keep the law, you'll come into relationship with God. The law is given to say you're in relationship with God through covenant. And this is how you'll live because of that. Matthew picks up that same theme with things like the Sermon on the Mount. It's not like if you live like this, then you'll come to God. He says, no, no. If you're part of God's covenant community, this is how you live. And so Matthew, very much all the way through, has the teaching of Jesus has the kingdom message, but everything is in continuity with the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and especially wanting to attract the Jews to see that this message is for them. Always underneath is, and beyond you for others, but it is for you. So Matthew, bold, oil painting, confident, yes, strong, great depth. Then we come to Mark. Oh dear. The dramatic charcoal sketch. It's interesting because when I was a kid and when I was in the teen, my teens and at university and stuff, if we wanted people to come to faith in Jesus, we would sometimes give them a John's Gospel. I'm not dead sure why. Because it's like in the beginning, what? It's a while before. If we're going to give anybody, surely Mark's Gospel is the one. Because Mark is the one that just gets straight in there. Straight in there. It's fast moving. It's action passed. It's the beginning of a James Bond film. Jesus just landed. He came from somewhere, somewhere, and he got on with it. That's how Mark starts. It's believed. I mean, there's always debates on all this stuff. If you, if you want hours and hours to waste, then you can read loads of stuff about what was first and why and who nicked what from who and the sources of this, that, and the other. There's loads of stuff in there. If, you, if you're really bored, you can get into that. Um, but this is probably believed to be the first written. Probably 68, 69 AD, give or take an hour or two. So probably the first, certainly the shortest gospel. It's quick, quick, quick. There is a word that Mark uses all the way through. Euthus, euthus. 40 times, 42 times, I think. It's over 40 times. And it's usually, and I'll tell you where we lose it as well, is that English translations often translate that word in different ways. So in one chapter, that word can be in three times in Greek, euthus, but in the English, it's translated three different ways. So we don't pick up that, which is a shame. But usually the best word to translate is immediately. 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 Bang, bang, bang. This is, this is quick. This is a charcoal sketch. 
we're not bothered about, about fleshing out detail. We're not bothered about depth. Just come on, get it done, get it done. Uthus, uthus, immediately, immediately. You find that over and over and over. Immediately, immediately. Bartimaeus immediately followed him. Immediately he gave him sight. Immediately Jesus said to him, immediately, bang, 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 bang. That, is, that gives it incredible momentum. Mark is that gospel where it's like harder to put down. Just keeps going, keeps going. Probably written for the Gentiles and more likely than not for the Romans. So Jewish customs are explained. And so a classic example people use is in Mark chapter 7. Mark 7 verse 3. Verse 2 says, Jesus is having a meal and his disciples are eating food with hands that were unclean. Well, any good Jew, you don't need to explain that to them. But what happens in Mark's gospel, brackets, the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers and kettles. If you are Jewish, you know all of that. But if you're a Gentile, especially a Roman, you have no idea. So unless that's added, when... Mark says the disciples were eating food with hands that were unclean. They're baffled. The, the Romans would be baffled. So what he does is he makes sure he explains it. So it's Jewish customs are explained. Even Bartimaeus' name. You probably know that Bartimaeus is son of Timaeus. And yet, blow me, in Mark 10, 46, he takes the trouble to say that. Um, they were leaving, the, leaving a large crowd, leaving the city, a blind man... Bartimaeus, brackets, that is the son of Timaeus. That is completely wasted words for anybody who has a vague idea of Jewish tradition <coughs> and language. But he's really keen to make sure he kept, keeps on telling them. Chapter 15, he says, and it was preparation day. Brackets, the day before the Passover. So there's loads of examples through Mark where Jewish customs are explained, Jewish terminologies are explained, rituals and stuff like that. Far fewer Old Testament quotations. A few, but not many Old Testament <coughs> quotations. And things, where there's the parallel account, so where there's a story in Mark that's the same as the equivalent story in Matthew or Luke, um, that, and in, it can be a big deal in Matthew that it was on the Sabbath. Well, Mark doesn't really care whether it's on the Sabbath or not. So parallel accounts in Mark don't mention the Sabbath because that is less of a big deal for Romans, but it's a big deal for the Jews. There's no discussion of the law in Mark's Gospel. The whole thing of the law in the background. Mark interprets Aramaic phrases and words. Um, there are those, and I probably would, would be amongst them, who would say that if you want the sort of the real close-up picture of what actually happened, then Mark's the best eyewitness. John Mark's, or Mark, obviously is John Mark, and John Mark's the, 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 the eyewitness. We'll come to who the eyewitness was in a minute. But, but he, he, he's given... He's given very, very sort of fresh information. So, for example, um, in chapter 5, there's the healing of the little girl. And we're given the actual words that Jesus said, Talitha kum. But it has to be translated. Well, what does Talitha kum mean? Well, Jews would know, Aramaic would know, yeah. And so, in chapter 7, um, Jesus heals the deaf and dumb man and says, F for And it has to be translated. And, of course, on the cross, the famous uh, chapter 15, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And it's translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so all those sort of words, you get the actual words of Jesus, so we can be fairly confident they're the actual words of Jesus. But of course, we're told them in the words that Jesus would have said, but that needs to be explained to people who don't know that language that Jews will be familiar with. And so Roman readership, they need to understand this. Latin equivalents are given for Greek expressions. So chapter 15, it says that they came into the palace. And then in brackets, in case you don't know what that is, that's the praetorium. Oh, so Jews, sorry, so Romans would have had no idea. What, what palace, what do you mean palace? But then he puts in brackets, that's the praetorium. Oh, right, we know we can picture a praetorium because we're Romans. So that's all the way through. And of course, Romans are very, very pragmatic they are very, very people, people of action. And so therefore, Mark's gospel is fast. It's action-packed. It, it's what Jesus did. He said some stuff. Yeah, that's fine. But this is what he did. So very much wanting to do that. And therefore, there's narrative. Narrative. Lots and lots of story. Much less teaching. Much, much, there's words in red, but much less words in red than there ever was in Matthew. Masses of story. Masses of narrative. Lots of story. And the biggest reason for that is that Peter 
is the one who lies behind John Mark's stories. And this is a really important influence on John Mark. And so the thought is, is that Peter was the one who was with Jesus on all of these occasions that are referred to. In fact, a friend of mine is doing some work on this and he's not absolutely sure yet, but um, he thinks that there is nothing that Jesus does in Mark's gospel at which Jesus, at which Peter is not present. And, and he's just thinking that through. So Peter is the source. So John Mark was the young guy, the young kid, the, the one who had the ding dong with, with Paul, if you remember. So John Mark is the Mark of the gospel. Um, and um, uh, a guy called Papias, who's one of the early, very, very earliest church writers, uh, sort of in the early church, post the gospel, post the uh, scriptures. Um, he describes John Mark as the interpreter of Peter. So he says John Mark interprets Peter, probably written after Peter's death, put together, but very much, okay, Pete, tell me what happened, tell me what happened. And you can imagine this young John Mark, bright, shiny John Mark, and Peter, this sort of older guy by then, maybe a little bit sensible. You never know. I got the feeling that Peter was never fully sensible, don't you think? Um, but, you know, maybe by then he was a little bit, not so much wiser, but less foolish. And so John Mark's there. And what happened then, Pete? What happened then, Pete? Oh, well, shh, shh. what happened then? Shh. That's where, that's the charcoal sketch. That's where Mark comes from. Young John Mark said, what happened then? Wow. What did you do then? What did you, Wow. That, that's, so it's an eyewitness account. It's very, very vivid. Um, so an example of that, chapter 7, th- um, 33 and 34. Yeah, look how vivid this is. Um, so this is um, Mark seven thirty-three. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven and with a deep sigh said to him, Ephatha. Brackets for Romans, which means be opened. At this, the man's eyes were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. You get the feeling that has not been passed through five lots of Chinese whispers. That was like, wow, somebody was there. Peter was there. Rise it down accurately. And you can imagine Peter slapping him. Get it accurate, boy. Come on. No, no, no. It wasn't like that. It was like this. That wasn't the words. This was there's something in there. Vivid action all the way through. Um, the gospel of movement. I don't know who counted this. I didn't. But and is used over three of oh, sorry, over 1300 times. I have no idea who counted that. But and because there's and this and this and this tie that together with Euphus immediately. Blah, 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 and this immediately this happened and this blah, 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 all the way through. Um, there's also a fascinating language thing here. Mark's language is not good. <clears throat> I don't mean I don't mean he's rude. Um, I remember years ago, and I know a little tiny bit of Greek, okay? I work with, like, proper Greek scholars, which is very scary. Um, but I know a little tiny bit. But many years ago, I was doing some study, and I had to do the translation of Mark 1 to 4, whatever. You know, he makes spelling mistakes. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Mm-hmm. See, if a strong evangelical, defend the scriptures, every single word. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so you get some grammar wrong, you know? Very early, his first time, right in the beginning of Mark 1. Right, is it verse 4, I think it is. As it says in Isaiah the prophet. And then he quotes Malachi. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> See, he, he's not a Luke and he's not a Matthew. And that messes with our inspiration of the scriptures. Anyway, let's not go there. I just like to throw little hand grenades in. Really interesting. And then in the second, third century, the early church was embarrassed. Because one of their big books says, as it says in Isaiah the prophets, prophets, and he quotes Malachi. And so therefore, some of the later texts, they changed it. And they changed it to, as it says in the prophets, taste prophetes. As it says in the prophets, to, to, dig, to dig ourselves out of the hole. Anyway, so we, when we talk about the interpretation of scripture, we need to know what that means. And maybe what it doesn't mean. I do not want to believe in the mechanical dictation of every single word. That's the Quran. Christians, we don't need to believe in that. And if we do believe in that, we are going to have problems with Mark. Do you know what gives me hope? Is that Jesus uses plonkers like Mark to write a story about himself. And that gives me hope. Definitely gives. Anyway, hope to friends. (laughs) Sorry, mate. I tried so hard for so long. (laughs) But that's the way to look at it, you see. And if we're not careful, we get a bit threatened by that. (gasps) You're saying that Mark got some stuff wrong. Isn't that wonderful that God can use broken vessels same principle and one of the things that mark does however is he used the he uses the historic present tense okay okay so if you know past tense is when you talk about what's happened in the past i think we know this i'm not sure how long we did go we did grammar but mark uses the historic present tense 150 times 
Now that is when a past event is presented in a way that makes it as if it's present, okay? So technically it's incorrect, okay? The best way to understand it is to give a modern example. So um, technically this is bad grammar, but if I say, oh, I saw this bloke yesterday. In fact, no, no, I saw this bloke Thursday and he goes down the shops and he buys this axe and he runs down the middle of the high street and he cracks the window of Costa and he goes down and he grabs this woman and he grabs her and he rushes and he... All of that is the historic present tense. It's technically wrong because it's present tense, but it happened last Thursday. That didn't actually happen yet. Don't worry about going shopping on the high street. But that's just, that's sometimes the best way to explain it. That's what Mark does. He goes down the shops, he buys it. Why? Because it's fast, fast, fast. That is the way that Mark writes his magnificent charcoal sketch. And of course, in, the, in, in Mark's gospel, the disciples are presented as absolute plonkers. They really are. I mean, they, they, they don't come across mega clever in, ever the, in ev- any of the gospels. But in Mark's gospel, the disciples, especially Peter, are presented in the worst light possible. Says a little bit for the eyewitness account behind it, doesn't it? Maybe he did get a bit wiser as he got older. Maybe he got a little bit more humble to think that the gospel and the source behind the gospel being Peter is the one in which the disciples, especially Peter, are presented in a really bad light. They come across so thick, so stupid. That gives us hope. Anybody call Peter here? It gives us hope. <laughs> <laughs> and what's really great is all the way through Mark's gospel, very, very frequently, I love this, Jesus says, do you still not understand? <laughs> you find that all the, way through, all the way through Mark's gospel. It's like, oh, for goodness sake, do you still not? Come here, Peter. I haven't got time to slap you. Just run into my hand. All the way through. There's that going on the whole way through Mark's gospel. Peter's humility that he allows himself and his mates to be presented in a bad light. But actually that gives hope. For the fact that God can use even plonkers like people who don't live in Worcester in the area. Um, and, and therefore, um, the discipleship journey is a major theme. So the disciples are presented in a bad light. But actually, the discipleship journey is a very major theme in Mark's gospel. Mark is structured around Jesus's journey. And it's interesting. Most of us would know that we know that Jesus's ministry journey was three years or thereabouts. But you don't get that from Mark's gospel. From Mark's gospel, it's quick, quick, quick. You try to put a chronology together for three years. You can't really do that. He's in Galilee. He goes to Judea, goes to Jerusalem, then goes to heaven. Then comes back. <laughs> um, Galilee, funny enough. And so, so there's that, the structure of Mark is very, very straightforward. And you don't get that picture of him going back and forth, back and forth. He's not a lot of walking around. He just gets on with it. Jesus's humanity is clearly portrayed. He's the son of man. He identifies himself very much as the son of man, the son of man. We're going to have to go to John for the, for the quality stuff of the son of God. Of course, Mark knows he's the son of God. It's very much that. But the big presenting, presenting of Jesus in Mark's gospel is he's the son of man, the son of man. Also, a little word, not that you can, you can get to heaven without knowing Greek words, but it might help. This little word, hodos, hodos. You will find that in Mark's gospel over and over and over. Um, it means literally a road, a path or a way. So let's look at Bart, Bartimaeus. is the classic. Just one example. I was preaching this a while ago, so it's still in my mind a little bit. Um, and so when Jesus encounters Bartimaeus, then the end of verse 46, so this is Mark 10, 46, Jesus meets Bartimaeus beside the hodos, H-O-D-O-S, beside the hodos. So it's beside the road, beside the path. Um, In the NIV, it says by the roadside. Then he has his stuff and gets healed and you know all the story. And then verse 52, immediately, (laughs) Euthus, immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the hodos. Bartimaeus is just one example, but you will find example after example after example of people who encounter Jesus beside the Hodos and join him along the Hodos. What then happens is the literal use of the word Hodos, meaning road, pathway, (coughs) becomes then a metaphor of the discipleship journey. 
Um, I grew up in a in a Pentecostal church. I'm sorry for some happy with others. Anyway, um, but I, I remember certainly as a as a kid and as a teenager, there was a tremendous emphasis on this sort of sudden conversion, and there was great value in that. But you know, one of the things I've seen in my very short lifetime is a shift, which I would probably want to argue is more biblical, where we talk journey language, where we talk journey. People being on a journey. People, Mark is your go-to gospel for the metaphor of discipleship being a journey. Now, I love C.S. Lewis on this because at some point on that journey, there must be crossing of the border. Anybody remember C.S. Lewis? He's brilliant. He talks about going from France. This is the many years ago when, anyway, there were boundaries and borders and stuff a bit more than now. But he talks about if you're, if you're in France and walk south, um, there'll be times when you get, if you're on a main road and you get to a border... And at the border, you know that both of your feet are in France and you take a step and suddenly you're in Spain. So you can do because you know you're at the border. But you do that two or three miles away in the middle of countryside. Well, how do you know when you cross the border? At some point, you've crossed the border. But how do you know when? And, and, and I love that metaphor. That's rooted in Mark's gospel because it's like, well, th- there, there must be a time from kingdom of darkness to kingdom of light. There must be a time of that salvation moment or whatever. But I'm not sure we always perceive it quite that way. And I love that metaphor of journey. And different ones of, of us will have pastored people, maybe different, we've been friends and we try to just help people through stuff. I've often used that phrase to people who get things wrong to say, okay, you've taken a big step back by this. But you know what? Over the last five years, you've taken nine steps forward. And now you've taken a step back. So overall, you're still eight steps forward. So we need to give people hope. We need to... You know, there's forgiveness. There's, so there's journey. And so just a little example. Bartimaeus is a great example. Beside the Hodos, then immediately Uthos. Uthos and then he joins him along. The, so so the, the metaphor of discipleship journey becomes joining Jesus on the path. Similar taken from the literal of the road. So Mark's gospel, dramatic charcoal sketch. Really, really good. <coughs> really powerful. But different. And certainly different from Luke's portrait. Luke is a different kettle of fish altogether. Luke 1, 3. It it just, this whole start is so different. Luke 1, 3. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent Theophilus. He wants to write an orderly account. He's taken that time. He's taken that thoughtfulness. This is an intricate watercolour. This is not somebody grabbing a bit of sugar paper and... This is somebody... Okay, let's, let's plan this out. Let's work this out. Let's, this is far more considered. doesn't mean it's better. It just means it's different and it has a different purpose. And so, in a sense, it's addressed to an individual. Um, so, Luke himself is not an eyewitness, so it's going to feel different to Mark, which was young Mark getting vivid eyewitness accounts. So Mark, for example, when he talks about the feeding of the 5,000, he makes a point, on the green grass. On the green, it's vivid, I was there. Mark talks about when Jesus is asleep in the boat during the storm. He's asleep on a cushion. You know, and you get the feeling, oh, it, was, it was blue and he had a picture of an elephant on. And that, no, no, no. It's, it's that. You don't get that in Luke. You don't get that vividness in Luke, but you do get the, 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 the carefulness. And he uses a classic form of literary introduction. Many have take, undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first who were eyewitnesses and, witness and servants of the word. So he's, he's very much got that, that classic literary introduction. Interesting as well that Theophilus, two Greek words put together, Theos, you probably know, means God, and th- comes from Philio, the second half, half which is to love and therefore theophilus is like god's friend filio type of friendship and so therefore there is a debate if you want to get into it whether theophilus was an actual bloke called theo theophilus or whether there's like a metaphor here that actually this is written to god's friends this is written to god's friends so you can go either way on that and probably he was a high place christian and but this was used as a teaching aid for others as well and this is where we need to see why this is the purpose so it's an orderly account by a careful investigator but probably for non-christian gentile readers greeks especially um, so luke clearly writes to present christianity as authentic and accurate 
it's based on genuine factual historical events and um, there's a phrase that sometimes people will use and and um, Luke would be the classic for this salvation history um, if anybody's ever read the apocrypha like bell and the dragon and all this sort of stuff about about you know, and it's, it feels like sort of Jason and the Argonauts. Did you what, used to watch Jason and the Argonauts on Boxing Day? As well, we always did that. Anyway, um, and 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 you get that sort of feel of, of sort of many-headed monsters and seven-headed this and three-headed this and nine-legged this and whatever. That is not Bible. Bible is history. It's interpreted history. It's remembered history. And Luke, of everybody of the four writers, is determined to say this salvation took place in history, and so. Um, see if I can find this. Now, for example, this is um, Luke 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Why tell us that? There's only one reason to have that type of detail in, and that is to put it in history. And of course, if you were trying to make up stories, and there are people who say, oh, the Gospels are all made up. If you're trying to make up stories, you would not put details like that in that are verifiable or unverifiable. But Luke, more than the other Gospel writers, is very concerned with salvation history. This took place in history. It actually happened. And that little example, you'll find all the way through. Um, John, uh, John, Luke 3, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Judea Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of, of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysianus, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of the Lord. Oh, for goodness sake, why tell us all that? Because it matters. This stuff happened. It's salvation history. That is Luke's concern. And he wants people to see this is true, this is genuine. Not just for, for, you, for you sharp Romans, oh, convinced that Jesus was, oh, he did this, did this, did this, oh, Mark is great. No, no, no. This is for thoughtful, slightly sceptical. Luke's gospel would be great in Britain. Thoughtful, careful, cynical, slightly sceptical people who take a lot of convincing. What are you trying to sell me? Oh. See, Luke has is, Luke is, is got that audience in mind. Careful, thoughtful showing this is about factual historical events uh, there's lots of unique material in luke's portrait <clears throat> masses of the accounts are unique to luke um, all jesus's early history um, by the end of chapter three of luke hello by the end of chapter three of luke there are 14 events not mentioned in the other gospels 14 events that are not remotely mentioned. And on top of that, so 14 events in the first three, but you know what is only in Luke? Jesus growing up in the temple. That bit, oh, not, I mean, you know, at the temple, not growing up there, but you know what I mean. The Good Samaritan, that's a cool story, that should be in everything. The Prodigal Son, only in Luke. Zacchaeus. It's really funny, when Mark... Um, Mark says Jesus and his mates went into Jericho. This is, the beginning, this is just the, before the Bartimaeus story. Jesus and his friends go into Jericho. On their way out, hang on a minute, what happened in Jericho? Well, he met Zacchaeus. There's a load of stuff happened. But Mark's not bothered. But Luke focuses on Zacchaeus. And so it's really important. There's unique stuff. Jesus' ascension to heaven. <laughs> That's pretty important, only in Luke. And so there's a universal emphasis. It's good news for all. Now, Mark, Matthew had a hint of this, but Luke is the one that is really, really keen to say this is good news to all. We mentioned before that the genealogy is back to Adam and therefore all the way through. It's about this is for all. So even very early on, chapter two, the angels address the whole earth. This is good news for the whole earth. Simeon describes him as the baby as a light for the Gentiles. And in chapter 3, verse 6, all mankind will see God's salvation. So all the way through, there's a universal emphasis. This is good news for all, good news for all. We all can may access this salvation he's bringing. Um, right, right to the very end, of course. And you know that um, Luke then writes volume 2. <laughs> and volume 2 is Acts. And there's a load more that will be said about that, I'm sure, later in the year. Um, but right at the very end, in uh, 2447... It makes a point of saying repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
So there's a beginning, but it, all nations. So the universal emphasis is all the way through. This is the universal message of salvation. He's not just a Messiah for the Jews. And two final things that are in Luke's gospel. Um, Jesus is biased towards the marginalised. There's some very deeply personal encounters. Lots of individuals, including 11 women. Luke very much honours women all the way through. But on top of that, the weak, the poor, social outcasts, older people. So like Zacchaeus would be a classic example. Social outcasts, older people, children, women. Um, the whole multiracial theme gains even more prominence in Luke Volume 2 in Acts. That whole thing of what the, the seeds that Luke sows in his gospel are ready to grow into full shoots by the time they come into Acts. So Acts is the fulfilment of that. Always think of, of Acts as Volume 2 of Luke's gospel. And the seeds are sown that this is for all. This is for all. And, of course... The other seed that he sells, send, that he sows ready for acts, is frequent connections to the Holy Spirit. Frequent connections to the Holy Spirit. Um, 17 direct references to the Holy Spirit in the life of ministry of Jesus. Um, also in the ongoing activities of the Christian community. Um, there's evidence all the way through of this. There's, there's powerful prayer. There's prophecy. There's rejoicing in the Spirit. Um, and of course, when it comes to the supernatural healings... Um, then Luke is a doctor, a physician, as you know. And so if you drill into detail, and I know you've not been able to get them yet because of the lost in a cloud somewhere, uh, but when you get the full notes, um, you'll see masses of stuff in there about the healings of Jesus in, in Luke's gospel. And um, one of the things that's always fascinating with that is um, how detailed the descriptions of the healings are by Luke. You know, it's like Mark's, Mark is like, she was ill, she's better, okay. <laughs> But, but Luke has so much more detailed, um, obviously, being that. Luke also dampens enthusiasm for the um, immediacy of the second coming, the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. It's like, well, yeah, calm down, guys. Salvation history. It, it might be a while. Because, of course, Luke's implication more than the others is there will be time to take this gospel to the ends of the earth. There will be time. And so his belief in the second coming of jesus is clear and evident but there's a sense in which you know what it's going to be a while because we need some time to preach this gospel before he comes not sure how well we're doing on that we're getting there at times um but frequent connections to the spirit and towards the marginalized bias those are the things that are brewing ready for um acts